0: Maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim.
1: You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the
2: world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree, the once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself or rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi Project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi Project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either-or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
2: Today on the podcast, we're taking a look at Egypt's ongoing economic crisis. We're joined by Vivian Yi, Cairo bureau chief for The New York Times, and Greg Carlstrom, Middle East correspondent for The Economist, to explore how the Egyptian pound has hit an all-time low and what's next for President el-Sisi's government. Our host for this episode is Lama Hayer, international journalist and reporter for the BBC, NBC and Al Arabi. Here's Lama with more.
3: The Egyptian pound has hit an all-time low and is the world's worst performing currency this year. Each visit to the supermarket in Egypt is now met with an alarming hike in prices for everyday goods. Eggs have reportedly doubled in price and are now seen as a luxury item for many. This economic crisis has been brewing for the past couple of years first thwarted by the COVID-19 pandemic. The economy was hit yet again by Russia's war in Ukraine. And after an exodus of foreign investment in the country, the Egyptian pound has been devaluing constantly for the past year. Meanwhile, the Egyptian government continues to fund mega projects, such as the new administrative city, which includes the tallest building in Africa and Egypt's new Ministry of Defense headquarters, the Octagon. I'm joined today by Greg Karlstrom, a Middle East correspondent for The Economist, and Vivian Yi, Cairo Bureau Chief for The New York Times, to discuss how Egypt's inflation reached such great heights, what this means for the government, and whether President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi can find a solution. Vivian and Greg, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thanks, Lama. Great to be here.
1: Thanks for having me.
3: Pleased to have you guys. Greg, I want to ask, what is the value of the Egyptian pound against the dollar today? And how does this compare to, say, a year ago?
1: It's been trading around 30 on the dollar for the past few weeks. Uh, If you go back a year, uh, the pound was trading between 15 and 16. So it's lost about half of its value since this time in 2022 and about 20% of its value in the month of January alone.
3: Right. Vivian, how this is affecting the cost of living for Egyptians from eggs to chicken legs is anything not a luxury at this point. (laughs) That's a good question. Everything has gone
0: up in price. Uh, I've talked to Egyptians um, across the country who say, you know, every time I go to the supermarket, my blood just boils, um, is is what one woman told us a couple of weeks ago, uh, because it just never seems to end Um, in terms of hard figures. Uh, Inflation reached an all-time high of 20% or actually more than 20%, but that was mostly driven by uh, an increase in food prices, although things have gotten more expensive across the board. So people are having a really hard time and and they're not uh, exactly pleased when the government is telling them, well, if you can't afford chicken,
1: have chicken
3: feed instead. It's harsh, isn't it? Uh, Greg, what were the early signs for this crisis?
1: Well, it started a bit before the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, sort of in late 2021. uh, There were some investors, portfolio investors, who had put money into short term Egyptian government debt who were starting to get a little bit nervous about the state of Egypt's finances. They thought, uh, the pound was overvalued, and that the central bank was artificially propping it up. Uh, they were concerned about Egypt's debt levels, which are around ninety percent of its GDP, which is the the sort of level that starts to set off uh, alarm bells in an emerging market. Uh, and so, there was a, a bit of money that flew out of Egypt in late twenty twenty one, early twenty twenty two. Again, portfolio investors who were who were pulling a few billion dollars out of the country, but. Uh, What really set it off, uh, as you said at the beginning, was the Russian invasion. We saw in a matter of weeks uh, more than $20 billion worth of portfolio investments in Egypt that were abruptly yanked out of the country. And that caused a, a severe shortage of dollars, which persisted throughout the year.
3: Okay, Greg, I want to ask you about um, the bailout that LCC government has received, which was $3 billion in the past four years uh, from the IMF. Where is this money being spent and will the IMF continue to offer lifelines?
1: Well, you could say some of that money will be spent paying back the IMF. Actually, Egypt uh, has gone to the IMF. This is the fourth time it's taken a loan from the fund since 2016. It's now the second biggest uh, debtor to the IMF after Argentina. Uh, And along with the money it owes to the IMF, it, it also has billions of dollars in other Uh, foreign currency debts that need to be repaid this year. What it took this time was only $3 billion. If you go back and contrast that with the 2016 agreement, uh, it took $12 billion from the IMF in 2016. So a much smaller agreement this time around. The idea was that a small deal with the IMF would serve as a sign of confidence in the Egyptian economy. Uh, And it would open up billions of dollars of uh, loans and investments from other sources. And so uh, it took less money from the fund than it did this time around. But uh, really, the country in many ways has fallen into a debt trap where it needs to do new borrowing just to pay back its old borrowing.
3: Vivian, having said that, um, the new administrative capital has been in construction since 2015, a city of skyscrapers and super-talls, including Africa's tallest building, an hour east of Cairo. How much is this costing, and what's the vision for this mega-project?
0: Yeah, well, it's not just super-talls, it's also super-wides and and super-bigs in every way. It's got a a giant cathedral, um, a giant mosque, as well as uh, Africa's tallest building. Um, I think it's also got Africa's tallest flagpole, or maybe even the world's tallest flagpole, And there's a massive new presidential palace that has all kinds of uh, pharaonic references in the architecture. And and I I don't say the word pharaonic lightly. I I say it because this is kind of the scale of the ambition that President Sisi is, is looking at here. And he wants to move all of Egypt's government offices, embassies, major corporate headquarters, the cultural life of the city, he wants to move all of that to this new administrative capital and the idea is to have sort of, he's built all these marquee projects all around the country, highways, roads, bridges, new cities everywhere, but this is kind of the cherry on top, this is the the real, you know, signature project for his legacy. The problem, of course, is that there wasn't a lot of studies done in advance or or analysis done in advance of how this would actually work, how much it would cost whether Egypt could afford it and whether people would actually be able to afford real estate inside the city, whether it would attract the amount of foreign investment that the government keeps saying that it will, not to mention no environmental studies, anything like that. And so even as it has risen out of the desert and and it is kind of spectacular to see just, just the amount of building that's gone um, gone on out there. You know, it has started to look like a huge boondoggle to the population who sort of say, Well, well, this isn't for us, is it? I mean, what is this doing for us? And Egypt has paid billions upon billions. And there's very little transparency into how the finances of this project work. What we do kind of hear universally acknowledge, even if not out loud by the government at this point, is that this was enormously expensive and Egypt can no longer afford to be building it and other projects at the same rate uh, that it has been over, this, over the past several years. And so what we hear in Cairo is that a lot of this construction is slowing down. The government has now announced that it will formally uh, cut back on all kinds of spending across the board in all but a few government uh, ministries. But it seems that these huge mega projects that have that, that Egypt has taken on so much debt for... It seems that they are being rolled back, or paused, or, or cut entirely. But again, there's very little transparency around this stuff, so we don't know how much it really costs. We don't know how much they're they're cutting by at the moment. So we'll just have to see. I did want to add um, when you were asking Greg before about sort of the origins of this crisis. Certainly, this was kicked off um, late 2021, and and especially when the Ukraine war began, but you know, Egypt's economy has been on a fairly shaky footing for a long time now. And I think that may surprise some people who are looking at sort of macroeconomic indicators and saying, well, the, the economy is growing, it, it bounced back from COVID, so on and so forth. That's all true. But at the same time, people have been really struggling since 2016, if if not before. I mean, for years now, uh, Egypt's own um, Central Statistics Agency has been saying that a third of Egyptians live in poverty, and if if you talk to the World Bank, they have an even wider number for that. Pre-COVID, they estimated that about 60% of Egyptians were living in were were poor, basically. Um, and so, even as the economy may have looked good for a number of reasons, cosmetically, and and a lot of that had to do with the money they were injecting for this construction drive, the private sector was contracting good jobs weren't available, a lot of people were living hand-to-mouth and just on, you know, hustling. Um, And the past few years have only gotten worse and worse for them. So I I think it's important to to show that, you know, people, the the economy has been weakening for years now. It's not just because of the war.
3: The thing is, how much economic power does the military have in Egypt? And can you explain why it has that much power? Well, for that, you have to go back
0: about 10 years now to when the current government came into power. Listeners probably know that Egypt's longtime authoritarian leader, Hosni Mubarak, was toppled in the Arab Spring protests in 2011. And when there was a counter-revolution to the revolution that brought him down... You know, basically, they, they had a, a democratically elected president for about a year there. And then President Sisi swept in on the back of an army takeover. And because his government is backed by the military, the military has become an increasingly powerful and, and visible force in Egypt, it's always been there. Don't get me wrong, for, for decades and decades. Arguably since 1952, the military has been in charge of the country, but it's it's come increasingly to the fore. And the government has empowered it not only in terms of running the day-to-day affairs of state, but but also in terms of turning over more and more of the economy to the military. So, you know, it's it's hard to think of another country where the military owns things like pasta factories hotels, cement businesses, you know, anything and everything you can think of that has very little to do with
3: the military, you know, so and it, I can think of some countries, but okay. yeah, true. Well, it's, it's, it's not a general situation. Yes, exactly. Shouldn't be the way.
0: Exactly. So, so, you know, fish farms, like all these things. The thing is, they enjoy a huge competitive advantage over any private company that wanted to get into fish farming or pasta or hotels or anything because they've got free labor through conscription. They enjoy all kinds of tax breaks. They don't pay customs duties. And so this is one reason you've seen Egypt's non-oil and gas private sector shrinking for many, many of the past several years, many, many months out of the past several
3: years, that is. Mm -hmm. Back to Greg. Um, Greg, I want to ask you, Uh, We know that Gulf countries such as the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been economically supporting al-Sisi since he took power. What's the nature of this relationship? And if these countries continue to prop up Egypt's government, what will they expect in return?
1: Well, I think the nature of the relationship has changed over the past 10 years, both politically and economically. Uh, the Gulf states, with the exception of Qatar, which supported the the Muslim Brotherhood government that was uh, overthrown in 2013, the rest of the Gulf countries were very enthusiastic about the coup and, and they threw money at President Sisi after he took power. So there was at least $25 billion worth of aid that came from Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Kuwait. Uh, to support the Egyptian economy in the months and years after the coup. And that was mostly direct aid with no strings attached. It was cash handouts. It was free shipments of fuel. Uh, it was deposits in the central bank to support the Egyptian currency. Uh, it was free money for Egypt because they were the, the Gulf states were enthusiastic about the coup. You fast forward 10 years, and there is still financial support coming from the Gulf states, but the nature of that support has changed. It's increasingly, uh, Gulf countries are buying up stakes in Egyptian firms, uh, whether it's Qatar recently taking a stake in Vodafone uh, or the UAE taking stakes in ports and and logistics infrastructure in Egypt, uh, which does give a boost to the Egyptian economy. It also, of course, pays dividends for, for the Gulf states because these companies tend to be profitable, the ones that they're buying. Uh, but it's not the kind of direct support that Sisi can use to plug gaps in his budget and to support the currency. So the Gulf states have made it clear. In fact, the, the Saudi foreign, uh, finance minister said exactly this at Davos a week or two ago. Uh, he said the era of no-strings-attached bailouts is over. We want to see economic reforms. And and they are, to some extent, putting that into practice by halting these, these cash grants and other sorts of direct aid. Uh, so there's a frustration in the Gulf both with the fact that Egypt seems like a, a bottomless pit, they have put tens of billions of dollars into this country over the past decade, and the economy is still a mess. And there are also policy disagreements. Uh, the Saudis were frustrated that Egypt did not send troops to support their war in Yemen. Uh, the Egyptians have disagreements with the Gulf states about policy in Libya, policy in Sudan, uh, and so the the Gulf. Still backs President Sisi and, and still to some extent thinks he's a, a necessary partner, but they are not as enthusiastic about him and they are not being as generous towards him as they were a decade ago.
3: So, frustration in the Gulf, how about in Egypt, Vivian? Egyptians are growing louder about the crisis. How popular is Sisi in the country right now and could Egypt face another revolution, you'd think?
0: This is the question that um, everyone is grappling with in Cairo, but I should sound a notion of a note of caution right at the beginning, um, saying that it's very difficult to gauge public opinion in in Egypt, given that there's no real polling done. the The state has become extremely repressive over the last five to ten years. and so people who even so much as you know, reshare a, a, a Facebook post critical of the government, can end up arrested as political dissidents, basically. It's very hard to figure out just how much resentment there there may be toward the current government. You are hearing more and more public criticism um, of the government and, and of President Sisi. And uh, that's not only from people just out on the street, but also members of parliament who formerly would have kept their mouths shut or um, just the other day, the the very prominent nephew of former President Anwar Sadat. His name is Mohammed Anwar Sadat. Um, He is the head of a political party here in Egypt. And although he's not exactly in the opposition, he um, has been calling for President Sisi to uh, retire at some point in the future. He's been calling for general, general amnesties for political prisoners. Clearly, people feel that there's some more room to... Push for things and and to maneuver politically than there has been uh, in recent years, just because the president is in a precarious position given the state of the economy, um, and and you see the strain in the president himself. I mean, not a week has gone by where he hasn't come out and said something very defensive uh, while giving speeches at events or on TV. And, and this has been fairly regular over the past year as the crisis has grown, uh, where he has scolded Egyptians for complaining on social media. He's said, you know, the government knows best, do not trust us. And most prominently, he's, he's gone and blamed the, the war in Ukraine for Egypt's problems. He keeps saying, well, look around the world. Everyone is struggling and, and Egypt is no different. And you see it in, in state media where they keep broadcasting reports uh, about how much people in places like Europe are struggling with high prices as well, as if to say to Egyptians, you know, it's not it's not just us, so so don't blame us, right? But but yeah, I, I will say that at least in my time in Egypt, which is only two years, um, but at least in my time in Egypt, uh, I, I've never heard this level of criticism. That said, again, I mean, The level of repression is very high. The level of fear over protesting is very high. Egyptians, some of them, may still be extremely proud of the revolution and and ready to do it again, and you do hear that. On the other hand, you hear from many people that they are scared of any further chaos and and the turmoil and just the, the total shock to the system that the period of 2011 to 2013 represented. And so...
3: So it's a 50-50 possibility.
0: I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't even know if I would go that far. It would certainly take, I would say conditions are certainly favorable to some kind of unrest or would be in another country. But, but here it would take a lot um, to get people out onto the streets again.
3: Greg, uh, for a final word, what do you think of the crisis? How do you think it all unfolds?
1: I don't think the CC government has any easy way out of this. I mean, a, a point that I heard in Cairo, I was there last week, and, and a point that several people made to me was, you know, in many ways, we're back in the same place we were in 2016. Uh, the government was running short of hard currency. It had to turn to the IMF. It had to devalue the pound. That led to soaring inflation and high interest rates that have been a drag on private business. Exactly the same thing is happening now, but the government and the private sector and the population are all in a worse place than they were seven years ago. The debt burden and particularly the share of that, that is dollar debt owed to foreigners, uh, has increased over the past seven years The private sector, as Vivian said before, has been moribund. There's an indicator called the Purchasing Managers Index, which tells you each month, is the private sector growing or is it shrinking? And it's been shrinking for 75 of the past 84 months. So private business is really in a dire place in Egypt right now. And the population was hit hard by the first devaluation and the inflation that followed it and really doesn't have any cushion to deal with another bout of soaring prices and and weakening currency. So the government is trying to get out of the situation now that it should have tried to get out of seven years ago. And and the IMF actually, I think, deserves some of the blame here, where in its first agreement with Egypt, it pushed the government to devalue the currency, it pushed to trim subsidies and raise prices and, and do sort of fiscal reforms. But there was very little emphasis from the IMF on getting the military out of the economy, on reducing the role of the state and selling off, you know, dysfunctional state-owned enterprises that lose money. Uh, There was very little emphasis on the kinds of structural changes that might make Egypt's economy more competitive and might help the private sector grow. And so now the country finds itself in this very bleak position today. Its latest agreement with the IMF, which it reached in December. Uh, does say a lot of the right things about all of that, about the the military's role and about trying to help the private sector. But uh, you know, we've heard some of this talk before from the CC government, and and it's only been talk. So, it remains to be seen whether he has the political will and the ability to make these kinds of changes. And even if he is determined to, and I think it's it's fair to be skeptical that he is. But even if he was determined to. The country is trying to dig itself out of a very deep hole right now.
3: Greg and Vivian, thank you so much. That was Greg Karlström, Middle East correspondent for The Economist, and Vivian Yi, Cairo Bureau Chief for The New York Times. This is Lama Khair, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us.